Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gathered us here tonight to hear the words of Jesus. We pray in your mercy that we would hear them as they are, your words, the word of the living God to us. Help me to speak it truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand what Jesus says and in your mercy to trust him for life. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, what have you been thinking about over the last few days? Uh, some of us, I know, have had matters of life and death before us, whether it's been attending the funeral of a friend or going to doctor's appointments or trying to plan for the future of elderly relatives. Perhaps in the light of Cardinal Pell's sentencing, others of us have been pondering matters of justice and judgment. Uh, but for many of us, I suspect, over the last few days, we've been thinking about how we can stay cool, how we can keep the garden alive, and yes, if we've got them, how we can keep the children occupied when they can't go outside. Oh yeah, and what do I need to do for work, what we'll eat this week? Oh, maybe when can I catch up with my friends? Our lives are often preoccupied with the ordinary, with the daily round of chores and pleasures and conversations. The horizon of our thinking is very much this world, our family, our friends, our study, our work, our health, which means it takes some effort to really come to terms with what Jesus says about himself and us in John 8. See, in this chapter, as you heard, Jesus does say a lot about himself and us. It begins and ends with Jesus making extraordinary claims about himself. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. There is a greatness to what Jesus claims about himself that is really far beyond our ordinary preoccupations, that transcends the conscious horizons of our lives. In just these two verses, Jesus claims to be a figure who dominates the universe and all time, of importance to all people, the light of the world, one who is, who shares the being of God with God. And as we'll see, there's a seriousness to what he says about humanity, about us, that is unsettling, challenging our confidence in our judgments and disturbing our complacency about our goodness and what we deserve from God. You see, here in the words of Jesus, if you listen, you'll see eternity intersects your life. Now, there's a lot in chapter 8, so I've decided, as you see from the outline, not to follow the narrative through, but to bring together what Jesus says here of himself and us to, as it were, concentrate it. Why? Well, it's so that encountering Jesus' testimony to himself and us in its concentrated form, we actually hear it. We feel its impact and so are forced to reckon with it and decide how to respond. So let's start with what Jesus says about himself, about his word, his work and about his person. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. 
In response to the Pharisees trying to dismiss everything Jesus says about himself by misusing the law's requirement in Deuteronomy 19 that to gain a conviction you needed two or three witnesses, a requirement that they used to suggest that nothing Jesus says could be true unless somebody else says it. Jesus replies they're wrong, that his testimony is true, that he speaks the truth about himself. And he goes on, as we see in verses 40 and 45, to generalise that claim. He tells the truth. I tell the truth. Full stop. Jesus says he speaks the truth. And it's true with a certainty that no mere human word can be. We see that because firstly Jesus distinguishes his knowing, the truthfulness of what he says from that of the Pharisees. Jesus says he has the full picture. He knows where he's come from and he knows where he's going. They don't. They judge, he says, according to the flesh. That is, their knowledge is limited by the weakness and intrinsic limits of this life of being finite creatures caught in a moment of time. Now, you may have heard the story of the blind men and the elephant. You know, each blind man confusing the small piece of the elephant that they're aware of, whether it's the tusk or the ear or the tail, with the total reality of the elephant. Well, that's us, thinking the small piece of the world and history we experience is the totality of reality. Now, who can correct those blind men? Well, who can really describe the elephant? It's the one who knows it all, who sees the full picture. That is Jesus. Jesus has the full picture about himself. He knows where he comes from, the beginning, and he knows where he's going, the end. He knows the beginning from the end. He has the full picture, and not just about himself. How? Well, while distinguishing himself from the Father, we see that Jesus repeatedly equates his word with the word of the living God, for he speaks what he hears and sees and learns from the Father. So his word is true because it is the word of the Creator God, what he has heard from the Father, who is true, who knows all things because he has created all things by his word and he rules over all things from beginning to end. Now this is a great claim, isn't it, to speak the truth. Not the truth as Jesus sees it from his limited perspective, which may be corrected by later and fuller knowledge. No, Jesus says he speaks absolute truth. Truth from the one who knows all things, knows all history, knows the beginning and the end. Now consider for a moment the value of a true word, of a true word in a world of many words, where we have learnt that what people say, even their description of their observations of nature, is determined by their outlook, their presuppositions about the world, so that what they say is always just their take on things. In this world, Jesus' word, he says, describes what is and what will be. In confusion and conflicting interpretations about reality and its nature, about right and wrong, about the best way to live, Jesus says his word is true. It can be relied upon. Think of the power of that. An example. 
your feelings perhaps. Say life will be better if you walk out or move in. But you don't know. Jesus' word says it's right to be faithful, wrong to have sex before marriage and that you will reap what you sow. Despite what you may feel, his truth lets you choose what will be best. More, we face ultimate choices in life, choices where we cannot know from our own experience what the consequence of our choice will be because those consequences are in the future, sometimes in the distant future. We face ultimate choices that determine direction now and our eternity. So, for example, do you live as if this life is just chance, just all there is, and so you ought to just maximise your pleasure now because you'll just stop? Or is there a judgement and an eternity with a divide between heaven and hell? Jesus says his word is true. He says, though heaven and earth will pass away, his word will still be true. And that listening to him, we can know reality, know what is to come. We can build our lives upon his word, make all our decisions and choices based upon his word with confidence that it will bring us life. Truth is treasure. And speaking the truth, Jesus makes, he says, true promises. Promises that are true because, well, they are the promises of the God who can do all things. The God whose word is powerful to bring about what it promises. So Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here are promises of freedom and life and light in darkness. Made to those, he says, who abide, to those who keep his word, who have not just a familiarity with Jesus' word, but a commitment to believe and live by that word, to keep on holding true to it all through life. See, what we see in John 8 is that Jesus is someone who claims his promise, his word, should shape your whole life, should be relied on for eternal life. Think, who can say that? And Jesus speaks here also of his work, of what he came to do and will do. So we see verse 49, his work is to honour the Father. And he honours the Father, verse 29, by doing his will. And Jesus says he does that will in all things, whether that's healing on the Sabbath or dying on the cross. Jesus' work is doing all things the work of God, his Father. And Jesus has come, he says, to be the light of the world. Now think of the scope of the work Jesus claims to do. See, he's saying, I'm not just the teacher of a few first century Jews, but of the world, embracing all people and all time. And think of the power of the work he claims to do. Light sustains all life, gives life. He says he is the light that guides and protects God's people and brings them to the land of promise, to life itself. Oh, and Jesus says, verse 35, that 
He, verse 36, he brings freedom, brings freedom from sin and its consequences, death and exclusion from God's presence. Again, think of the scope. Sin enslaves all. And Jesus says he can give freedom to any. And think of the power. Sin has ensnared the whole world. But Jesus says he can break its hold. Who can give freedom? Not just from this human oppressor or that, but freedom from all, for all, and for all time. Do you get here a sense of what Jesus sees as the significance of what he does? Well, making these claims about his word and work leads Jesus to being asked the obvious question. Who do you make yourself out to be? This is the climactic question for the Jews he's been in conversation with throughout John 8. They ask, who do you think you are? But of course, Jesus has been speaking of himself and of who he is throughout the chapter. He has spoken freely of his relationship with his father, God, the father they do not know. Say so verse 16, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus says he's sent by the Father and that he is one with the Father, God, in judgment. More, verse 18, he is one with the Father in witness. And yes, verse 19, he truly reveals the Father. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He truly reveals the Father, God, such that to know Jesus is to know the Father. Again, verse 26, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus says he is taught by the Father, hearing from the Father what he should speak. And verse 29, he is always with the Father, and he always does the Father's will. So while distinct from the Father. Jesus says his words, judgments and actions are inseparable from the Father, inseparable from God's. And Jesus says he cannot be separated from the Father in our relationship to God. If God were your Father, you would love me. He says you cannot claim a relationship with the living God without loving him. And Jesus is confident that he can leave his glory. He can entrust his fame and reputation, the revelation of his true being, in the Father's hands. This relationship with the Father, verse 55, is not something he can deny for the sake of pleasing his critics, even if it costs him his life. Jesus claims to be, yes, distinct from the Father, but inseparable from him, coming from him and returning to him, truly revealing him, speaking his word, doing his deeds on the earth, such that to see him is to see the Father, to know him is to know the Father, to love him is to love the Father. And this is so because his being is the being of God. In response to the Jews' question about who he is, 
Jesus spoke of Abraham rejoicing to see his day. And the Jews pick him up on this. Verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. This is the third time Jesus has used this phrase in John 8. And the other two examples are in John, in verse 24 and verse 28. Now, the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation reads in verse 58, I have been. Why? Well, they want to teach that Jesus is, yes, pre-existent, lives before Abraham, but just an exalted creature. And so they want to avoid any suggestion that Jesus is not just pre-existent, but eternally existent. But Jesus says, I am a present. He always is. He is eternally existent. I am is used absolutely. He's saying there is no limits on his life. He knows Abraham. He can be sure that Abraham rejoices in his day, the day of resurrection, because he always is. Distinguished from the Father, like the Father, he has life in himself. And like the Father, he knows his people for all time. I am. Now that's a phrase that self-consciously says that Jesus has the being of God. You see, it's a phrase that God uses of himself, especially in Isaiah 40 to 55, as you'll see from the references in the handout. Isaiah 40 to 55, where God declares he's the saviour and there is no other. Though in those verses you'll see it's often translated, I am he. And in Isaiah... This phrase, while not quoting Exodus 3.14, actually recalls the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14. That's where God proclaims his great name, his almighty freedom, saying that his name is I am who I am. Jesus' use of that phrase is identifying himself with God. Now, the Jews had no doubt about what Jesus was claiming. <laughs> they see it as a blasphemy and they seek to stone him. You and I should have no doubt that Jesus claims that while he is distinct from the Father and does the Father's will, he shares the life of God, that he is God. In the words of John 1, he is the eternal word, become flesh. Seeing that Jesus used the phrase as absolutely in verse 58 also helps us understand and feel the weight of his earlier uses of the phrase in verses 24 to 28. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Jesus is saying that we must believe that he is God come amongst us if we must be saved. And that this is a claim that amazingly will be demonstrated by his death, being lifted up on the cross. Now, think about it. There you are, first century Jew. Here is a man standing, talking to other people, and he says, 
I am. It's astounding, isn't it? If what Jesus says of himself is true, well, Christians are right to have confidence in his word, to have our understanding of God shaped by Jesus, to be lost in wonder at the cross. But whether you think Jesus is telling the truth about himself or not, you must recognise that you cannot disagree with Jesus here and still think he is a good man. As C.S. Lewis observed, if not true, he's either the most brazen liar or completely deluded. <coughs> but Jesus doesn't just talk of himself in John 8. He also speaks about his questioners. Now Jesus has said quite a bit about his hearers already before we get to verse 31 where he speaks to those who believe in him. Uh, Jesus has said to them that really they're ignorant. Verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. And he says to his hearers that that's an intrinsic ignorance. Being creatures, there are some things that they just can't know and their judgments are marked by the weakness, the frailties and the limits of the flesh, the life of this age. They cannot judge God. More, he says, verse 21 following, he says it three times, they will die in their sins. Religious people, zealous to observe the outward commands of the law, are still, he says, rebels against God. And because of that, they will die estranged from the life of God, die forever. And they can't give themselves life by what they so zealously do. And it means that their judgments are not just marked by frailty and finitude. You see that verse, 30, verse 23? You are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world. Their judgments are also marked by their commitment to the world, to rebellion against God. That will distort all their thinking about God. And so they'll never find the truth by themselves and they can't get themselves out of dying in their sin by their knowledge. But Jesus seems to reserve his hardest remarks for those who had believed in him. So Jesus said to those who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In fact, it's one of the striking features of John 8, just how hard Jesus is on those who have believed in him. I mean, reading it, we think, surely, Jesus, they believed in you. Give them a break, you know, encourage, nurture. Don't alienate and infuriate. But what we see is that Jesus seems intent on turning them against him. Why? Well, let's explore that. Who are these who have believed in Jesus? Perhaps they've been impressed by Jesus and what he said. Perhaps they think he should be grateful for their interest, for their aligning themselves with him and his teaching. But like those we meet in John 2 and John 6, these are not disciples. 
They're still dealing with Jesus on the basis of their understanding of him, not his. Liking this or that that Jesus may say or do, but not receiving him on his own terms. And Jesus says that to be disciples they must continue in his word. Then they'll know the truth, the truth that will free them. Free them from what they ask. And Jesus gives them an answer they don't like. It's very solemn, verse 34. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, keeps doing sin, is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. Now, slavery is something his hearers <coughs> were familiar with. To be a slave was to be in the possession of your master, to be someone who has no rights, who cannot do other than his or her master's bidding, cannot free themselves. In particular, Jesus highlights that a slave is someone who has no permanent place in the household, no permanent belonging. So despite their possession of revelation, despite their believing heritage, despite their external ritual conformity, these Jews were still slave to sin and reaping its wages, dying in their sin. Now sometimes what Jesus says here, the truth will set you free, is used absolutely, as if any truth, even being true to yourself, will set you free. But that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. It's the truth about him, who he is and what he does, that the disciple learns as he continues in Jesus' word. Oh, and the truth about how you're to live as his follower. That truth will set you free because it's Jesus, verse 36, who sets us free. And the freedom is not political freedom, the freedom of being self-directed or being able to do whatever you want. It is the most precious freedom from sin and death and from the lies that maintain sin's hold over us. His believing hearers had to, says Jesus, by abiding in his word, follow him to the necessity of the cross. But they could not even accept what he taught about them and their need. So Jesus continues to tell them the truth about their situation, about why they cannot receive his word. Theirs, you see, is a willing slavery. But to help them see that, Jesus shifts the talk to talk of fatherhood, addressing their claim to privilege because they have, verse 39, Abraham as their father. Oh yes, and because they claim, verse 41, to have God as their father. That is, they say that their spiritual privilege extends to being included in Israel, of whom God had said in Exodus, Israel is my firstborn son. But Jesus uses the language of fatherhood. And he's not using the language of fatherhood to speak of physical descent. Oh yeah, he knows the Jews, a seed of Abraham, physically descended from Abraham. He is using the language of fatherhood to speak of character, in the sense of our saying, like father, like son. You see, whose family you belong to, the likeness you bear, is seen in the values you embrace, the desires you pursue, the actions you perform. 
Now, by this standard, Jesus says, their claim to have Abraham as their father is shown to be empty. Verse 40, Abraham believed the word of God, but they rejected. Their claim to have God as their father is also shown to be empty. Verse 42, because they don't love the one the father has sent. So whose children do their actions and desires show them to be? Especially their inability, verse 43, to receive the true word that comes from God. Well, Jesus says, verse 44, that what characterises the devil characterises them and that what he wants is what they desire. Theirs is a willing slavery to sin. So what characterises the devil? Verse 44, you're of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, the devil, says Jesus, is a murderer, someone who hates and wants to take the life of others, in fact, to plunge our whole race into death just as these Jews want to take Jesus' life and in so doing attack all life, life itself, the life that is the light of humanity. And in Genesis, we see that the devil, chapter 3, murdered through lies, the two big ones. Here's the first big one the devil tells us. You will not die. God will not keep his word. Oh, and yes, what goes with that? The creature's word, your word, can rival God's in establishing reality. And with that lie comes the second big lie, perhaps the biggest lie because it is a seductive half-truth. You will be like God. You can determine for yourself what's right and wrong. You can be accountable only to yourself and hold all else accountable to you because that's what it is to be God. You only need to look to yourself. Now Jesus says his hearers have so embraced lies that they cannot now recognise and receive the truth spoken by the one who speaks the truth of God. In fact, they hate the truth. For if you live with those lies long enough, you will immediately reject the one who tells you the truth simply because he tells the truth. Because the truth he speaks, the truth he speaks from the living God, threatens the whole foundation of your life, built on those lies that God will not keep his word and you can be God. Oh, and threatens your confidence in your own goodness based on your own judgment of yourself. Jesus says his hearers, not receiving his word, are ensnared in lies and death, blind to the truth and unable to discern it. Jesus is being hard on them to help them see their plight, the full extent of their helplessness and need. But the Jews that Jesus is speaking to, these religious officials, are not unique, are they? Their problem is our problem. You heard Jesus. Anyone who commits sin, not just the Jews, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We are all of the flesh. We all just have the life of this age of ourselves, not just the Jews. We are all from below of this world. 
Our judgments are flawed and finite, in no place to judge God and reject his word. And yes, we all will die in our sin. And believing those lies, the lies upon which our world is founded, we are all children of the devil. Did you hear Jesus? He says that anyone without him is enslaved to sin. Anyone who rejects him shows they don't know God and that none of us can solve our problem, can free ourselves, can establish truth independent of him. Now these claims infuriated his first audience and they seem so extravagant. What proof could be equal to those claims? Well, Jesus tells us it must be a God-only proof, something only the living God can do. Jesus knew that. You see, he entrusted his glory, his reputation, his truthfulness to the Father, the true judge. There's one who seeks his glory, he says, and he is the judge. And that God-only proof is seen in God reversing the judgment of the world, of the Jews, on Jesus. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, says Jesus, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. You see, Jesus really got under the skin of his hearers. They grew to hate him and eventually they succeeded in killing him. They lifted him up on the cross to show, well, the truth of their judgment on him, that he was a liar, that his life had limits, that death could take him a mere man. But the Father did what only the Creator God can do. He raised Jesus from the dead in the body in which he died. Now, Christians speak often of resurrection, but that should not make us forget how unique and wonderful it is. You see, which other great religious teacher has had the audacity to say, kill me and in three days I will rise again? That's not a test many of them expose themselves to. Who else of all the billions of people who have ever lived has actually ever done it, died, been put in the tomb and three days later been raised in the body in which he was killed to convince his followers, not just that he'd stumbled out a wounded and anemic man, but that he was the king of glory. The resurrection is uniquely claimed and consistently maintained. Jesus spoke of that lifting up as revealing his true nature. In being lifted up on the cross to be the saviour of the world and in being lifted up through the cross to the Father's right hand, to the glory which he had with the Father before the world, all will come to know, says Jesus, that he is I am. That he, like the Father, has life in himself, a life he can share with others. And all will know that his word is the word of the living God, a true word. That the things he said about us and our plight are true. Oh, and that the promise he has made are true. That all will know that he is the one who brings, that he is the provision we need 
for the mess we're in. That's right. In being lifted up, we will know that he is light in our darkness. He is freedom, the source of our freedom as sons in the place of our slavery. That he is truth in a world of lies, lies that are deep in our heart, lies that have spread through our world. That his is life and he can give life in a world of death that has embraced the destruction of life in believing lies. Oh yes, all will know that he is love where our lives have become ensnared in murderous hatred of God. And Jesus says this provision is for all, all those who abide in his word, who follow him by keeping on with believing and the keeping on with the believing that does his will. <coughs> so what will you do? with the Jesus who confronts us with his greatness and who speaks serious words about our need. Many of his first hearers rejected him. They couldn't believe that they were that bad, given to lies and death, and not the privileged people, the good people, the people able to judge God that they wanted to think of themselves as. They couldn't believe that they were enslaved, not freely choosing what they wanted, but given to their master's murderous will. And they couldn't believe that Jesus was that great and that good. God come amongst them speaking the truth to bring freedom and life. But we live on the other side of Jesus being lifted up. We have his teaching and we've seen its impact on our world over thousands of years. And it's not the impact of a mad or bad man. It's transformed lives and societies for better. More, we have the witness of God to Jesus' truthfulness. God glorifying his son on the cross in the resurrection and exalting him to be the giver of the spirit of God, the giver of life. Now listening to Jesus in John 8, you may have recognised for the first time that the claims of Jesus are the claims no good man could make for himself. they claims only one who is God and man could make. And you may be uncertain hearing that for the first time, uncertain how to respond to them. Perhaps that's because you've never thought of yourself as enslaved or dying in sin. Or maybe it's because hearing Jesus, who until now you've thought of as a good man, a good teacher, well, has actually unsettled you because you realise you can no longer think of him in that way. Well, if that's you unsettled, don't stay uncertain. Investigate. We would love to read a gospel with you, to introduce you to Jesus. Well, maybe you're here tonight as a believer. Well, let me encourage you to believe it, to grapple daily with the greatness of Jesus. Resist the temptation to contain him in your domestic horizons or to shrink him so you can tailor him to your needs. And resist the temptation to think that the plight of your neighbours is not as serious and deadly as Jesus says so that you don't slip into lies and solutions that are no solutions. You know those solutions, we just need more education or 
Each one of us can find his or her own way to God or no one will die in their sin. That's the devil's first lie. Now listen to Jesus and see your neighbours enslaved and only able to be liberated by the word of Jesus. See them as having ears unable to hear unless they are unstopped by the Spirit of God through his word. So you keep sharing that word. Oh, and resist shrinking Jesus so that you can keep on seeing how precious your faith in Jesus is, that your faith that believes and heeds and obeys is actually not the end of your freedom, but its beginning and source. And your perseverance in the faith is actually part of a great and history-long struggle with the evil one, that it's a participation in the victory of truth and love, and that your confession of Jesus is actually a protest against lies and death. Don't shrink Jesus. Grapple daily with his greatness. Know Jesus as he is. I am the eternal Son sent from the Father, sent in love to be lifted up to give life to the world who speaks the truth of God, speaks the truth of God to you, the truth that can be absolutely relied on every day and forever, for he never fails of his promise. Grapple with the greatness of Jesus so that you can know the comfort and confidence of trusting him, the word become flesh. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would hear Jesus speak of himself so that we would trust him as he deserves to be trusted, the one who speaks the word of God because he has the life of God, the Son sent from the Father. And we pray, gracious Father, that we would hear Jesus speak of us so that we would turn to no one else but would be those who abide in his word and so know freedom and life forever. And gracious Father, we pray that we would keep listening to Jesus so that we are confident enough in him to share that word that gives us life with our neighbours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.